Welcome to this week's edition of Daytime Dialogues. This time, I'm taking the interview from my office because I just finished an hour and a half presentation with our guest today, where I was meeting with him as well. Robert Wexler is a, a good friend and a very, very prominent person in our American Jewish community who you may not have heard about because we're from Chicago and not Florida. If you were in Florida, you would know that he served in Congress from 1997 to 2010 at the 19th District. Um, and he currently is the president of the S. Daniel Abraham Center for Middle East Peace. But beyond that, Robert was a senior member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He was one of two congressmen to actually travel to the International Court of Justice at The Hague to oppose the Palestinian case against Israel's construction of a security barrier. And every day, Israel is on his mind, and every day he's working to try to find solutions, ways that we can help, and the ways that we can bring people together. And so I'm really extraordinarily grateful that Robert has agreed to give us some time today to talk with us in this forum. Robert, thank you so much for being with us. No, thank you, Rabbi Tanki. It's my pleasure, my honor. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. So let's start with, what, with what's right now on the, uh, on the table in Israel, a new government. It looks like it's going to be coming in with Naftali Bennett as the initial prime minister. Um, is that something when we look at the overall picture of the conflict in Israel, is that something that you think is good, this change? Or is it just we're continuing with the same Israeli governments and it's just going to continue in one way or the other? Well, first, I, I wouldn't presume what's going to happen. It seems like we're going to have a new government, but we may not. We uh, still could have Prime Minister Netanyahu. We could have a fifth uh, election. Who knows? But to your point, um, you know, generally speaking, and I say this not as a reflection on Prime Minister Netanyahu or any other individual, at, at some point, I think a, a level of change is positive. And most importantly, if I may, what is most remarkable as we talk, the uh, direction of the Israeli government seems that it will be determined likely by um, the leader or the Islamic party in Israel, which is a, a remarkable development and something I think uh, most Zionists and, and Jewish Americans should take great pride in, the fact that um, Arab citizens of Israel and their political representatives, and in fact, the religious officials that support those representatives are uh, engaging in decisions that will determine the political future of Israel. And why is that important? Um, if you look at some of the most outlandish criticisms of Israel, uh, whether it be that it's not a democracy anymore or the treatment of minorities or, or you know, whatever is the basis of the BDS movement and things like that, um, it seems to me that a wonderful uh, 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 opposition to that type of outlandish argument is simply pointing out the political engagement of the Islamist party in Israel. Um, that speaks for itself. And after the latest conflict in Gaza, had that has that changed the engagement of that party or in general, the, the segments of the Arab population that were seeking to engage and to find peaceful ways of 
of working with Israel? Um, sure. Um, you know, it, it's hard, I, I understand, for, for people to put themselves in the shoes of any politician, but let alone a, a um, Arab citizen of Israel's uh, shoes. Imagine the political courage that it takes um, in the middle of a war um, to, to essentially make movement in a historical way towards joining a government if you are a Arab-Israeli uh, representative or leader. Um, so the, the consequences are significant, both politically and for the community in Israel, the minority community of 20% of, of Arabs. But, but most importantly, um, what I think is, is noteworthy is uh, Mansour Abbas, who is the, the leader of the party, when, when there was all the intercommunal violence in, in Lud, they, he went to the, the town. Um, and, and many people think of, of Lod, of course, as just simply being near Ben Gurion Airport. But there was a, um, you know, a lot of intercommunal violence and a synagogue that was attacked. And Mr. Abbas, member of Knesset Abbas, went to the synagogue um, as a extraordinary gesture of, of unity. And, he's, and he was criticized, quite frankly, by people in his own community because they felt that there was, of course, comparable violence from their perspective directed against the Arab community by the Jewish community and, and, and so forth. But these are the type of leaders that um, will rise above whatever the, the momentary violence is and call for a, a, a common purpose. And I think we, we should take great pride in that. And in terms of the other Abbas, the president of the PLO, uh, is he, or the president of the Palestinian Authority, is, is he playing a role in any of this or is he just hanging on? Um, both. Um, we, we have a contradiction um, and, and it's unavoidable. For instance, Secretary Blinken, when he you know, rightfully uh, at the end of the, the war and, and to, to make an attempt to meaningfully implement the ceasefire uh, has called for a rebuilding of, of Gaza, uh, particularly in the context of humanitarian conditions. I think we can all be supportive of, of helping people in terms of their food and water, medicines, things of that nature. But rightfully, he points out that none of this can occur to the degree that it will benefit Hamas. Um, Hamas uh, hasn't changed its stripes. It's a terrorist organization under American law, and it acts like a terrorist organization. And we saw it in the last several weeks as it targets uh, civilians and so forth and uses its own civilians as, as decoys. But the, the challenge is, well, if we're not gonna benefit Hamas, then which entity is gonna play the, the primary role? And the only entity as imperfect as it is, that is, uh, has the opportunity to play that role is the Palestinian Authority. And that's of course headed by, by President Abbas. And when I say imperfect, it is a very imperfect entity. There's too much corruption, um, not a great deal of vibrancy, unfortunately. Um, but on the other hand, um, uh, while again, not perfect, they 
They do stand for a nonviolent solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as compared to Hamas. And the degree of security cooperation between the Palestinian Authority and Israeli officials is still quite significant. And what I think people can point to rightfully and should take notice of is that even while rockets were flying from Gaza into Israel, and there was significant, unfortunately, communal violence in Israel in certain mixed cities, and East Jerusalem was quite tense, the West Bank largely was calm. And, and that is a testimony to, to the Palestinian Authority security forces and, and what they hope for their own people. Now, there are many factors, but um, I think we should note that. Yeah, but isn't it an aspect of my enemy's enemy, the kind of thing that, um, that as long as Hamas is around, the PA seems really good, but sure. if Hamas wasn't there, we would have the, the corruption, the, the lies, the deceit. You and I were together several years ago in Ramallah, listening to Saib Arakat, and I'll never forget when he was describing the history of the Palestinian people, and he said it goes back to the Canaanites. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but steam was coming out of my ears at the time. Yes, and I do. I, and I did interrupt him, and I said, aren't you the children of Ishmael? So those are the kinds of leaders in the PA that we're also dealing with. There, there is this, um, this denial of Israel, even though they accept the state of Israel, and even though there is elements of cooperation. Yes, um, you're right, Rabbi Mitenki. Um, we are dealing with a Palestinian authority that um, has many contradictions. And um, it's hard to frankly figure out the truth. But I think your first point is the most meritorious one. And that is, um, what is the alternative to the Palestinian Authority? At least at this point, it, is it a Jeffersonian democracy? Is it a, a moderate democratic or Republican party? Unfortunately, no. The alternative, and, and they are growing in influence and acceptance, unfortunately, amongst the Palestinian population, is Hamas. And, and why is that? Well, there are many reasons. You pointed them out, corruption and the way they treat their own people and so forth. But one of the other major aspects is that if your platform is diplomacy and reaching a diplomatic resolution to a conflict in which your people are a part of, then if you're ultimately going to prevail amongst your own people, you have to show results. And they don't have really many results to show at all. Now, that doesn't mean it's Israel's fault or America's fault, but the point is um, they, they, meaning the Palestinian, uh, the PLO, ushered in a new era with the Oslo Accords that was supposed to be a five-year period, and it's turned into a 25-plus year period. Again, I'm not suggesting one side is at fault or the other, but it's very difficult to maintain a diplomatic strategy um, if that's the premise of your government when there are no results. So that's our challenge, I would argue, ours, the Israelis, and the Palestinians who, who support a nonviolent negotiated result to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. How do we create that political horizon given the inability of the Palestinian side and political realities in Israel? 
if I can come back to this side of the ocean for a moment, um, with our new administration in Washington, a Democratic administration, you yourself served Democratic administrations and are a Democrat, I believe still. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in that sense, we hear a, more criticism of Israel from within Congress. And it may be that we're overly sensitive to it, not being used to hearing that kind of criticism, but between the squad and then also the voices that came up uh, during the, the most recent conflict, even that front page of the New York Times, which had all of the pictures of the children who were, were killed, some of whom unfortunately met a second death apparently because some had been killed in earlier conflicts, but their pictures were included in this. Um, what's your take on what's happening in Washington and in the United States regarding the support for the state of Israel? Um, support for the state of Israel, thankfully, in terms of our government is, is still at historically strong high levels, both amongst Republicans and Democrats. Um, at the same time, uh, it would not be truthful to acknowledge that there is a growing debate regarding Israel and that that, that debate is, is more vociferous for the time being within the Democratic Party. But it's also true that um, the, the, the extreme criticism within the Democratic Party is really a, a matter of a very few people. The vast, vast majority, not 60%, but 95% plus of Democrats are stalwart supporters of the security relationship between the United States and Israel, because Israel is a strategic ally that is in incredibly important to us militarily, intelligence-wise, um, and diplomatically, but also because of shared values. And the tension that we, we see um, is when there's a perception that those shared values at times uh, are, are being strained. And, and what's the result? I've talked to dozens and dozens of Democratic members of Congress in the last few few weeks, almost to a person, man and woman, they all support women's uh, Israel's right of self-defense. And, and they do so without reservation. What they also ask, though, is are the, the housing demolitions in East Jerusalem really necessary? Um, why are they just? And they don't make a moral equivalence between the two. They understand what rockets flying into the country mean and what a country has to do to defend herself. But they also ask, are the housing policies just? And to what degree do the housing policies, for instance, relate to the broader conflict? Now, no one should be confused. Um, Hamas used the situation to exert itself in a way that a terrorist organization often finds, uh, which is for its own self-interest. They, they have little concern for the welfare of their own people. They've shown that over and over again. But it is a fair question to ask, long-term, without a political horizon, without some degree of hope for greater and greater autonomy in terms of Palestinian communities that ultimately leads to some degree of self-determination, um, how do the moderates win the political argument? 
And that's what Democrats are asking. Democrats are asking, for instance, um, you know, what, what should be the posture of the American government when the Israeli government announces more settlements, settlement housing starts? And um, you may say, and I would agree with you, what does that have to do with rockets flying? Well, it, it doesn't. And it doesn't justify, you know, uh, a rocket flying because you're building a home somewhere. However, what Democrats, a larger number are saying is that we, we, meaning the United States, we are so strongly aligned with Israel and also believe that a negotiated two-state outcome is the preferable outcome. But that is nowhere, you know, no one thinks it's uh, within uh, shooting range. So what do we do? Now, that probably wasn't a great uh, <laughs> metaphor, but um, what, what do we do in the interim to preserve opportunities for people? And most importantly, Rabbi Mitanki, what do we do in the interim to improve people's lives, Palestinians and Israelis? And what can we do to possibly narrow the political differences? And the moment we can put forth a a believable, credible plan to do that, not resolve the conflict, just improve people's lives, I think you'll find Democrats being um, quite unified in support of such a policy. And specifically, what am I referring to? If we could help the Israelis and the Palestinians figure out a way so that a family, a Palestinian family in Nablus in the north, could drive to visit their family in the south in Hebron and do so without um, uh, engaging Israeli authorities, um, that would be a big benefit in their life. Let's figure out transportation contiguity in a way where it doesn't impact Israeli security and implement it. Housing, for instance, um, much of the problem, and again, I say this without judgment, but much of the problem is that it's difficult for Palestinians to get um, housing permits in area C of the West Bank, which is controlled by Israeli civilian authorities. If we could improve that situation, um, that would be of great benefit. Family unity, I'll stop with this, I'm talking too much. But uh, anecdotally, one of the most powerful things I ever learned was when I, I spoke to a young Palestinian man in his late 20s. And he told me, he asked me, he said, do you know what's the first question often a young Palestinian man asks a young Palestinian woman? Um, I, I said, no, I have no idea. And he, he said, usually the, the question will revolve around where do you live? And why do they ask that? Because it is very difficult for Palestinians, for instance, to date someone. If Let's say a young Palestinian woman lives in East Jerusalem, but the young man lives um, in Ramallah. Very difficult. Now, this is just a slice of life um, and just a very small part of the equation. But if we could figure out a way that would help Israel enable family unity and personal type of uh, livable conditions to improve, then I think you will find a, a far less volatile political situation in Washington. And it, the New York Times, I, 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 can't, uh, <laughs> I can't speak for that. 
So if you were pulling out your crystal ball, um, the current administration and its interactions with the state of Israel and uh, Secretary of State Blinken's approaches, the security measures, the funding for security, you think that is still something that is safe for, for the state? Absolutely. Number one, um, I, I think it deserves recognition. President Biden's statements during the war, uh, I think from anybody from a pro-Israel perspective, um, it, it, they were pitch perfect in, in the sense of supporting Israel's right to, to self-defense. Uh, I know President Biden, I've known him for years. We have never had a president as pro-Israel in his, in his kishkas as President Biden is. Now, how does that play out in the broader policy? Um, the, the administration, I, I think, has been quite upfront um, in terms of identifying the priorities. The priorities, of course, are COVID, 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 and, and getting us past COVID. And once we do that, the priority is economy, 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 and schools, 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 getting children back to school. On the foreign policy realm, the, the priority is China. And it's China, China, China. And when we get past China, it's Russia. And when we do that, we will rebuild the transatlantic relationship. And in the context of all that, we will address you know, global climate change, which threatens us all. And the fact is, progress with respect to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not viewed in that same tier, number one, because possibly it's not as threatening to our interests, but number two, the prospects aren't so positive. Um, I would argue we can do more than one, two, or three things at the same time. We're still a great you know, global superpower. And for those of us who care deeply about the American-Israeli relationship, a political horizon is good for Israel. It's good for America. It's good for the Palestinians. It doesn't have to be unrealistic. It doesn't have to cause um, traumatic political drama, but people need to see improvement and, in their lives. And what I think the last few weeks unfortunately show is that if you think you can ignore politically the Israeli-Palestinian equation, or if you think because of the Abraham Accords, as valuable and as you know, great achievement as they are, we could ignore the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, unfortunately not. And then to shift one more time, you obviously are a passionate lover of Israel. Yes. How did, how did you become such a passionate lover of Israel? Um, well, um, it, it, it's not a great story by any means. Um, I would give a, a lot of the credit to my wife, Lori. We met in high school. Um, and in many ways, uh, Lori, my wife, wanted to make Aliyah. I was... Uh, we, we went to, to Israel on our honeymoon uh, because my wife didn't want to be married to someone who had not been to Israel, and I had not been to Israel yet. And since then, um, we, we both, uh, as I'm sure you have, Rabbi Matanki and many of your listeners, been to Israel, I don't know, 50, 60 times. Um, and um, to me, um, while I, I have so much yet to learn, um, my Jewish identity is central to, to the core of who I am. And uh, having had the privilege of serving in elected office in Florida in the state Senate and then in the United States Congress, um, 
there wasn't a day that went by that I was not cognizant of the privilege that I had. And quite frankly, as I'm sure you and, and many of your listeners, the, the fact that my, my grandparents never could have dreamed to, to be in a position of, of serving in an American government, let alone in the United States Congress. And I, I do believe whether it's as a member of Congress or a rabbi or any other position of responsibility that you not only represent your own core beliefs, but you represent your community. And, and uh, the American Jewish community is, is very much a part of who I am. So, so this was natural. Do we have in our American Jewish community people going into government as you did, people who are in Washington, who we really can continue to count on? Or is it something that's shifted over the generation? Um, I, I think we do. Um, and in many ways, I think in, um, it, it's stronger today. Um, uh, I'm 60 years old. I just turned 60. I think it's fair to say in my parents' generation, um, the, the, the goal oftentimes for many Jewish Americans was to assimilate into the community, to be accepted in the community. Working in large law firms or banks or things of that nature was not necessarily an accepted reality. Whereas today, and to some degree, I think it started when Joe Lieberman was nominated as Al Gore's vice president in 2000, um, being Jewish and more importantly, being a proud Jewish Zionist uh, in America was, was uh, not only accepted, but a, a, a positive thing. Um, and, and so we, we, we meaning uh, American Jewish political leaders, um, I think became more comfortable in our position and exerting influence and leadership and things of that nature in a very American way in a very patriotic American way. Um, and I think that continues. Will there be strains? Of course, uh, the increase in anti-Semitism is, is frightening and it needs to be dealt with at all levels of government, all levels of religion, all levels of society and education. But I, I think we have a thankfully a very vibrant American Jewish community that will continue to produce political leaders, writers, um, uh, communal influencers, and, and frankly, there's a major role for religious leaders too, and, and uh, both Jewish and Christian and Muslim to bring societies, communities together for, for a degree of common purpose. Um, that's our challenge. All right, and bringing religious leaders together is also something you've done regarding Israel, where you've brought together leaders of the Muslim community and the Jewish community to talk about these kinds of things. Um, you have, uh, with Rabbi Melchior, done some extraordinary opportunities of, of teaching American Jews about what the possibilities exist. Uh, just how did you get involved with that? Um, I, my eyes were open, frankly. Um, as, as a member of Congress for the first several years, I. I did not engage with religious leadership in Israel or in the Palestinian societies um, out of my own ignorance, um, quite frankly. And what I, I grew to learn was that while the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not a religious conflict per se, um, that religion plays a very important role and that religious leaders will either be a part of the opposition to diplomacy, or they can be a very essential 
added value to diplomatic efforts. And uh, the more I get to know religious leadership, um, some of the rabbis deep into the settlements, frankly, or the Islamist leaders that uh, have a great deal to do with creating the, the type of perceptions in the Arab communities, the more I realize that particularly during a time of political stagnation with political leaders on both sides are unable to find some common ground that religious leaders can. And they are an enormous asset to both Israel and the Palestinian societies. Um, now, religious leaders are not going to replace political leaders. They're not going you know, to negotiate the treaty. However, they can inform the debate in a very healthy way, or quite frankly, in, a, in an unhealthy way. And we've seen examples of both. And so I think it's incumbent upon uh, anyone who has the opportunity to help work with religious leaders, if nothing else, to ask them to apply their own genuinely held moral and ethical values from their religious learning and teaching, apply it to the world. And, you know, in some ways that's maybe a, an unfair ask, but um, asking religious leaders to broaden their own horizon, what I find, um, what, what the result is, is then it, it carries over to their congregations, to their communities in wonderful ways. Uh, a, a sentence or two of greater respect from a rabbi to his community um, can have a, a, a very lasting impression on many people. So to the degree that um, I'm able to, to help inform that discussion, then, then it's an honor to have the opportunity to do so. Well, Robert, our time is up and you have been someone who's helped form conversation. I know under your leadership, dozens of rabbis have learned more about what's going on in Israel today from its very different perspective. And also members of the Muslim community have learned and you're also doing the same thing now with educators as well. So I thank you. Uh, thank please, you. Please send my best to Lori. I will. It is good to have the person behind the throne as well be part of all of this. And she really does add a tremendous amount. I can say that from firsthand experience as well. And I thank you for your time so very much and look forward to wonderful new things coming out of the center and uh, all of the activity that you have. Thank you. Very thank you much. so much. Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye.